Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Gernit Wagner. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm very good. And uh, all right, so let's see if I can remember how we've met, because I think I've been trying to remember this, and I believe that we met over Twitter, and I don't really use Twitter that much, and uh, and then it turns out that we live a mile away from each other. <laughs> and so uh, I think you were at NYU at the time, and now you are, I believe, a full professor at Columbia Business School. I got my MBA at Columbia, uh, but now I'm teaching at NYU, not a full professor, just an adjunct. And we met and we started talking about the first time we've had two conversations that were really long conversations in person and uh, both of them down near where we live. And the first one is about, I think, personal living sustainably. And we, I think we both left like that was really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I guess we ran into each other a couple of weeks ago at a talk at Columbia and that's where I met Bob Litterman. So regular listeners will know that episode will have just gone up before this one. And I also recorded with Greg uh, Bertelson, whom I think you also know. And uh, we, and then we since had a conversation that was really lovely. And we were both, <laughs> which I would have thought would have been the more controversial one because we're both trying to live more sustainably and have made our homes more sustainable. And somehow that caused friction. And then we're both talking about how to really, what, what are some really visionary, but the most effective, I think we both agree, solutions to um, solving all this pollution, I think would have been more, much more controversial, but there we agreed. I, um, have I gotten it about right from your memories? <laughs> and uh, what what have I left out of? I mean, you have a long background before I met you. No, no, sounds about right. I guess uh, uh, lucky that Musk was not yet in charge of Twitter because I I guess I've effectively <laughs> shut down my Twitter account since. Uh, but uh, yeah, sounds about right. Um, and uh, maybe to go back to so our first conversation, right, which was us taking a long walk through our um, neighborhood. And, oh, the uh, first one, I think, was just sitting at that coffee shop. Sorry to interrupt, because I remember that woman listening right. to yes. us and commenting on us. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, maybe, okay, I mean, you're, you're the host here, you guide, but uh, it might actually be instructive to go back to that, right? Because I yeah. think I remember, okay, yes, while sitting there and then, uh, you know, talking about basically our, uh, basically sort of, efforts to decarbonize our own lives right and what it all means and i think i remember this now so you were talking about how you live without a fridge right unplugged and, yeah uh, unplugged yes fair um and i basically said yeah that's like the height of luxury right like like that's a really you know that's privilege right to basically be able to say yeah, I don't need that, right? I can afford not to have it and i think it was the the the, the woman next to us who okay i you might remember this differently, but who, where she, re, she agreed with me, right? Basically saying. I agree. Yes, she did. That, yeah. Uh, it was like, yeah, right? Like, you know, I have kids, right? Like, what do you think? Like, like, how do I feed them? And I can't afford to basically, you know, not to have the fridge, essentially. And, uh, well, maybe this is precisely this. Right? Sort of maybe the most important conversation when it comes to these sort of decarbonization efforts, right? How far can you go based on based on society, right? Based on how we've set ourselves up. And, you know, in my case, I think sort of the extreme example, what some might consider extreme, um, you might not, is so we don't have a washing machine in our house, right? Not because 
you know, we couldn't afford it, not because, um, you know, we go to the laundromat across the street or it's sort of your typical New York apartment setup, right? You have the laundry, the, the, the washing machines downstairs in the basement, right? Shared with the neighbors kind of thing. But basically because we pay for somebody else to do our laundry, right? You know, the wash and fold service, basically, that every laundromat around here offers. Um, and I can tell you, I've gotten into heated debates, I guess, in my Twitter days. And now I suppose Mastodon were, you know, the typical European degrowth, um, aficionado, right? Would, um, basically say, wait, we gotta dematerialize our life, right? And I basically agree and then say, okay, cool. Is me not owning a washing machine now degrowth? Or is it actually growing our economy because I pay a lot more money to get my laundry done without owning the washing machine? Well, I want to engage on a few things you said there, especially that woman. (laughs) (laughs) But I I want to go back because uh, listeners don't know that much about you. And uh, could you describe your background? And uh, I mean, I think just yesterday that piece came out in the New York Times about – uh, congestion pricing. And, and so I think you write a fair amount. You've, you've got books out. Can you give a, a bit of background? Uh, sure. So, okay. I, I guess I mentioned European before, right? So that's where my accent is from. Uh, born in Austria. Uh, now spent, I guess, the past quarter century by now. I came over for college, uh, came to the US for college and never left. And I also started being working on focusing on climate economics way back when in the dark ages, very end of the last century. Um, and have basically never done anything else, always focused on how to make sense of basically misguided economic forces being the problem and guiding economic forces in the right direction being the solution. Right, sort of the the sweet spot of climate economics. When I say sort of been doing it forever, right? You know, by now, you know, what is it? Sixty percent of people have climate in their LinkedIn bio or claim they're in a in a climate job these days. I can tell you, a couple decades ago, talking about being a climate economist, uh, in many ways, sort of invoked this immediate reaction. Wait, you're living, breathing oxymoron, right? Like, yeah, pick your battle, right? Pick pick your side, right? Like, you can either be for the climate or you deal with you know, unemployment rates and exchange rates and GDP and so on. Um, I think by now, nobody would question whether it makes sense to combine those two because, well, that's how you figure out the sweet spot of how do you come up with the kind of solutions to these very real problems we are facing. One of the criticisms I have for a lot of economists and also a lot of sustainability people in all areas is that they're not trying. They're not, you know, I, I have an experimental, my, my degree in physics is an experimental. I help build a satellite and no one just looks at, no one think of just theorizing in physics. And there's so much speculation and theorizing you're doing. Most economists, I mean, you're doing in your life. I, I guess that's, that's getting to what, what you were talking about before. You mean like? By the way, since I'm doing two, you mean I, I do personally, or that economists do, or that sort of you know economics as a discipline. Well, that you do, and that you you're changing your life. You're you're not having a washing machine. You're changing your apartment or your house. Or you're you're 
it's not an apartment. Is it an apartment? It's I haven't been in it, but I've, I've just been, you've shown it from the outside. It's a yes. It's a well. It's a uh, it's a it's a loft. Let's put it that way. So it's right one big room, all seven hundred and fifty square feet of it. Uh, don't get me started about basically the the folks who sold it to us basically sold it as an eight hundred square foot loft. And um, yeah, anyway, that's a completely different story. Um, the usual, <laughs> usual New York City real estate. Stuff. Uh, well, the article but, uh, that had had come out then was, I think, in New York Magazine, saying mm-hmm. how you had renovated it and made it much more sustainable. Yeah, uh, I mean, yes, right, and yes, and that focused on the apartment itself, not the not the building. And so that's what I'm talking about about trying these things out. I, I believe a lot. Everyone, I think, a lot of people say it's not a lack of technology. It's not a lack of of ideas. It's a lack of implementation and. I think a lot of the challenges of implementation are the hurdles that you have to go through, the, the questions that you described yourself asking, that it takes soul searching to answer them and it takes gut checks to act on these things that I think people give short shrift to. Of- Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I think that's a – well, uh, yes, right? And I would say that it's a – fairly recent phenomenon fairly recent possibility right i mean okay sure right you, you know it's it's always been possible to live off the grid right it's always been possible to basically cut your own emissions to essentially zero but frankly you know without the right technologies in many ways yeah that often does mean sacrifice for lack of a better term right it sort of means like you are doing things that you're Sort of specifically taking a particular step, even if it's inconvenient, right? Even if it's sort of not uh, the obvious thing to do. And meanwhile, right? You know, we we living in a world where look the the induction plate, the induction stove is fundamentally a better technology than what has come before. The heat pump is you know five times more efficient than any other way to you know, heat your home or cool your home for that matter, right? So there are this these new sets of technologies that, by the way, are, yes, heat pump costs more than the gas furnace, as we speak, still does. Um, you know, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, you can get it basically for the same price uh, very soon. But uh, But still, for some other things like induction cooking, where you literally have the three-star three Michelin star chef, right, swearing by it as being the better, more precise technology. And you can have the college kid pay 70 bucks at Ikea for this induction plate that basically is fundamentally better than the $1,500 gas range that, of course, also takes up much more space in your apartment, right? And um, I guess what I'm saying is that we are living in this very real dramatic transition phase where um, leading the zero carbon close to decarbonized life um, has very little to do with sacrifice and has a lot to do with basically embracing those new technologies, you know, going for it and yeah, experimenting, right? Like basically, you know, Fighting with landmarks to be able to do the sort of thing in your apartment building that ordinarily wouldn't be possible because, you know, landmarks considers the sort of 
uh, efficient Euro style windows, the triple glazed ones, not to be in the character of the West Village or whatever. So wasn't something that would ordinarily be approved um, to put into your building. And there's also a lot of things that aren't technology. I mean, I don't have a television and what I've replaced it with is volunteering and learning. Well, I was trying to learn to sing for a while, but like <laughs> people often talk about when someone challenges, well, how, what could a low energy future, low pollution future look like? And people say, well, there are a lot more cultural things. Of course. And I think that they say it, but since most people saying it aren't living it, it sounds hollow. It sounds like, well, you don't prefer, if you, you're not doing it, so you don't, you probably don't actually think it, like you'd rather watch Game of Thrones than uh, go outside and, and play ball. <laughs> uh, well, okay, look, I, I completely agree. Okay, so, you know, actually, uh, I, our listeners can't see this, but you're looking at my, my building, my, my place here, my, my loft here. Uh, so, no, no television, right? Mm -hmm. By the way, no kids' rooms, right? So, yes, okay, we have two kids, right? Married for. 20, wait, what is it? 23, 21 years. Uh, we have a 12 year old and a nine year old. <laughs> wow. Um, we don't have rooms for them. We have a, uh, one of these retractable, uh, bunk beds, uh, you know, fold up both of them, uh, in the middle of our, um, of our room here. And I can tell you, uh, well, okay, pluses, minuses, right? I think, the minus of oh wow the kid does not have their own they don't have their own room what are you gonna do when they are teenagers kind of thing well one of them is a preteen turns out and what's the plus look our kids can't hide in their room with the game I guess not Game Boy sorry that's not you know, kids don't use those anymore but uh, you know watching their own TV or fussing around on their own computer or whatever uh, they don't have any of that either uh, on phone or whatever and yeah are you know sort of forced to help cook the dinner, the family dinner, and then clean up after uh, together. And, you know, is that a sacrifice? Or is that fundamentally a better way to organize your life? Because, well, look, kids spend too much time on screens, and turns out ours can't, right? Uh, you know, it's a choice. That's clear. Um, I'd like to think it makes for a better family life. Uh, but of course, it's a conscious choice to take this step. Do you read much anthropology? I've been getting into a lot lately. And I just, you're reminding me of something I read, and I can't quote it. I apologize. I can't cite it. But it said that for most of human history, and that it's hundreds of thousands of years, kids, how do they put it? They said that many cultures would probably view the lack of touch and time spent together of us today would be like abuse back then. I think people would, there's much more interaction. And I feel like there's a lot of, I feel like you're talking about the opposite of isolation and our culture seems to be moving toward more and more isolation. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, okay, so not to make fun of bourbonites too much, uh, but, you know, welcome to what used to be my Twitter feed. Um, so, uh, yeah, right. So the, you know, the, the what's usually... The pro-family, right? The large suburban home type situation. Wait, really? That's the pro-family stance as opposed to the small urban apartment where, yeah, for better or worse, you do spend much more time with your kids. Um, 
you do spend much more time as a family. Well, in our case, literally in that one room we all share. And uh, yes, I think I'd like to think that it's in fact better for the kids too. And, you know, I mean, okay, ask me tonight after some, you know, heated debate with the 12 year old over some silly little thing. Um, But actually, that's the point, right? We have those discussions at all times because you can't avoid each other. I mean, you know, you want privacy? Cool. Go across the street to a cafe with a book and read, right? Um, If you want to get away from us. Uh, And maybe I I guess that's the broader point too, right? So it's not just uh, family life now. It's also, you know, I'd like to think that it would be, you know, we would have a fundamentally better society overall if neighborhoods, all neighborhoods were much more walkable, much more designed like, you know, lower Manhattan is or sort of the pro, the... um, the original suburb, right? Brooklyn, right? <laughs> With the brownstone, the walk-ups, and so on. Uh, where, yes, you do meet your neighbors on the stoop or uh, 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 by walking down the street, as opposed to, frankly, the way we design our suburbs and have been for decades, uh, where all you really see of the neighbors is the three-door car- garage, right? And see them leave in their SUV every once in a while. I'm curious now about the interaction with your colleagues because I suspect that they don't – that you're talking about values and living values that they're – and when I say colleagues, I mean people who promote sustainability or study sustainability or study how we could live sustainably because I think that they probably don't live this and you do. Uh, well, depend. Okay. So hold on. Right. So my immediate colleagues, right, uh, you know, I – Columbia, right? Um, you know, many of them, most of them live in Columbia faculty housing. Guess what? Those are, you know, relatively large apartment buildings on the, you know, upper, upper west side, right? Um, Manhattan. And, you know, in some sense, the same idea, right? Um, now, it certainly is true, right? When you have conversations about how one lives, well, you know, that stuff hits home. Well, duh. Um, and it gets personally very, very quickly, right? Where basically, you know, the, the otherwise very, very, you know, sort of, uh, basically otherwise people who literally do everything possible to cut their own emissions draw a line with the separate bathroom for the 14 year old. Right, where it's kind of like, no, I can't imagine my kid not to have her own bathroom or own bedroom for that matter. And then you sort of, you know, frown a little, raise an eyebrow and say, wait a second, did you have your own bathroom growing up in the 70s? <laughs> right. And no, it, it, it turns out, right. Like, actually, I, I looked into this because I actually I wrote a book about this, uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, how your own living situation is sort of the ultimate right um question when it comes to decarbonizing your own life um and i actually i measured the square meters square feet i had growing up as a kid and it was a okay a two family home in the suburbs of a very small town in austria um i had 78 square we the four of us had 78 square meters of actual living space Right. So around 850 or so square feet. Um, in, you know, growing up in the eighties. Um, and now I have 70 square meters of actual living space. 
750 square feet. Uh, sorry, so before it was like 850 or so. But, you know, I had like, ba- we had barely more. And that was the idyllic suburban life, right? Now, it's only a fairly recent phenomenon that the suburban single family home, you know, has uh, 3,000 square feet or 5,000 square feet or whatever, right? And, you know, these are no, no longer homes. They're basically, you know, they are what used to be called mansions, right? Uh, Mac mansions, right? <laughs> um, and sort of turned into this standard of, oh, that's what it takes to lead the good life. And the short version, I guess I would say is, uh, no, it's just not. I look at McMansions and the the growth of that. It, to me, that's just driven by easy access to fossil fuels, which would be augmented if we had easy access to uranium and fusion. That it's it's not like it's a human drive to do that. It's just we have all this extra energy, and so we can uh, all the stuff. That, I mean, making it. We have what we would call what's the word? Uh, the, we would say that humans are more productive, but it's we're. Aug- we're augmenting our productivity with with this huge amount of power, which would be great if it didn't pollute, but it does. Or it would be great if it didn't and if we, if we didn't deplete it, but it does. And I feel like what you're talking about is, and I think what you're saying is, is re- it's not changing ourselves; it's restoring something that we lost. Uh, okay, so yes, up to a point. Um, now, to be clear, right? You know, I'm all for energy abundance, if that's the right term, right? You know, limitless carbon-free electricity with no other trade-offs? Fantastic. Sign me up, right? Like, And, and maybe actually a good example of this is I, I get reminded of this every month when Con Ed sends me the bill and basically says, compared to other homes of your size and your type, and I don't know actually what, what they use to compare it, uh, but actually I know what they don't use. So, so they tell me month after month that – we are using too much electricity. And I've actually had a conversation with somebody fairly high up at Con Ed at some point and said, like, do you guys realize that we have a heat pump and don't have a gas line? Like, we are not paying you for the gas. Don't you know this? So can you please adjust your email you send me uh, to tell, you know, to tell me to uh, use less electricity? Uh, because we do have a heat pump, an air heat pump, which uses electricity. And... uh Therefore, our electric, electric patterns, right, are just different. And relatively speaking, yeah, in, you know, when it's really cold outside, we do use a lot more electricity than we otherwise would. We also use no gas, right? And, um, basically, if we were to all electrify our homes, which of course is precisely the right step to take, right? You know, insulate, 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 electrify, 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 and decarbonize the electric grid, right? Those are the three steps, basically, um, to decarbonize the, you know, your own uh, buildings. Um, electricity demand would actually go up as a result. I mean, clearly, right? Like, you know, perfect insulation to sort of German passive house standards, right? Um, uh, uh, electricity demand, too, might go down eventually, um, as it should. But electrify everything, of course, means increased electricity demand. And that would be a good step in the right direction on this path toward zero carbon emissions overall. Let's stop burning fossil fuels in our own home. Step one, right? Um, Okay. 
what does that mean overall? Well, it does mean that more electricity, more energy is a good thing. And, you know, not just for the billion living in abject energy poverty for whom, I mean, yes, we should all cheer for access to more electricity, uh, but even us here in the rich world, right? This is my example with the Con Ed folks, right? Like, no, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not taking a step in the wrong direction by installing a heat pump. Uh, even though your monthly reminder email tells me that apparently you can't figure out that it was a step in the right direction. One of the things that drives me is uh, I, I, these words go through my head a lot. People have lived on this island of Manhattan for something like 10,000 years without burning any fossil fuels the whole time. So if they can do it, and they weren't, I think that they weren't all miserable. So they made it through winters without burning fossil fuels. Now they're going to be burning wood and things like, and other things, uh, which always points me to that that's a lot of people think if, if, you, if you burn a wood, if you burn wood inside a building, you're in trouble. I mean, you're going to choke on it. But the issue with it being burned outside is population. So, okay. So, so there's a lot here to unpack. So, yes. Okay. Well, okay, let me start with this very definitive statement. No, I don't want us all going back to our caves, right? I didn't say that. Uh, you didn't say that, clear. Yeah. Yes, right? But so, uh, so you know, the extreme case would be, I mean, yeah, we know how to cut emissions to zero. To, actually, no, let me, pre- let, me, let me qualify this immediately. Like, we tried, right? Like, two years ago, we all went back to our caves. And guess what? April 2020, emissions went down radically. But by how much? Like 25%, 20% or so globally for the month, right? And then for the year, uh, well, they were still lower, like six or so percent lower global average. And of course, right, went back to trend and have been increasing ever since, yet again, right? Um, so no, it's not about, right, like going back to the good old days. It is about basically employing clean, new, better technologies that will enable us to frankly lead a pretty darn good life um, while cutting our carbon emissions substantially, right? Uh, now, okay, to be clear, right? Like, you know, me pointing at my, you know, the 750 square feet I share with, you know, two kids, wife and dog, right? Um, is, uh, is sort of the counter example here, right? That no, I'm not talking about building the 5,000 square foot Mac mansion fully electrified um, in the sort of you can have it all scenario, largely because I don't think that's what it means to have it all, right? I wouldn't want to be driving even in my electric car, right? For the, you know, 60 minutes it takes to get back to the city in the morning because I'm stuck in my golden cage out in the burps, right? Um, so, Frankly, this also, by the way, is a very much an economic idea here, right? So I'd like to think most of us in many situations are more or less optimizers of our lot in life, right? Like we optimize our living situation based on and so on and so forth. When it comes to square feet, we are maximizers. We don't optimize, right? We don't sort of by and large. I mean, you and I do, right? But sort of the, the bourbonite, right, does not say, Wait, um, let me 
optimize square feet, right? I mean, talk to the average real estate agent. It's all about, you know, how much home can your money buy, right? I mean, I, I, st- I, I still remember walking around lower Manhattan with our uh, agent when we bought this um, uh, uh, place. And she kept referring to every apartment we saw as either some version of, oh, this is a good starter home for you, right? Like with the sort of the understanding, like, oh, yeah, you know, this is all you can afford right now. Go buy this, right? Uh, and, you know, come back to me in two years because you're ready to move into a bigger place. Uh, it's like, no, like we're looking for the optimal here, right? We're not looking for the maximum our money can buy. And uh, I, again, actually, same, same, uh, same time period. I remember talking to the mortgage banker who was sort of surprised that we, you know, only bought a place that was, you know, X gazillion dollars, <laughs> the one we bought and didn't buy more because wait, isn't your wife a gynecologist? Like, doesn't she have, you know, don't you have a high enough income to justify, uh, to justify more square feet? It's like, yeah, we do, but like, no, we don't want to blow it all on, you know, overextending ourselves to whatever it is you're supposed to be spending, right? A third of your income on, on, on your mortgage kind of thing, which of course is complete fiction. Um, uh, no, be okay, right? We want to maximize here. Uh, sorry, we want, uh, we want to optimize here, not maximize square feet. I'm hearing, so there's a lot of things that regular listeners will know that I, come to different places than you do. But we're talking about values here. And I think that that drives – this is, this is my read. Is that you, you're thinking about what are my values? What do I want to uh, put my resources to? And not just – and a lot of these values are not just yeah, – actually, you're not saying this, but let, let me see if I – you're considering how your behavior affects others. Of course. Yes. How, does your, how do your thoughts about others factor into this? Because I think it's unstated because I think a lot of people think – the environment is like parts per million and sea level rise, but it's all abstract. And to me, if I'm, if I turn on the lights, or let's say something more, if I turn on the uh, air conditioner, then that's, that's causing some coal plant somewhere to burn more coal. That's causing, that's contributing to suffering of people, of animals, of, of, I mean, people really is what's important to me. Sure. I mean, you know, you, what you're describing is what economists would call an externality. Yes, right? We don't, you and I don't pay for the full cost that our actions uh, will have cost, right? Uh, and every ton of coal burned, right, causes more in external damage than it adds value to GDP, uh, to be, you know, to say it very economically, uh, uh, economics focused. Um, and yeah, by virtue of the fact that there are externalities all around, Largely negative when it comes to pollution, but of course also positive, right? Learning by doing externalities, right? Cities are the sort of, uh, you know, conglomeration of, of, of positive externalities. Um, that's why people want to live in cities. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the problem is that those externalities are all around. And frankly, for something like climate change, right? They just dominate, right? They, they blow everything else out of the water. Except that they don't show up in our counting. Well, exactly. That's the problem, right? I mean, okay, yeah, let's start with that, right? Like, you know, you can't manage what you can't measure, what you don't measure, right? And like, yeah, right? Sort of fundamentally, I mean, this is where the, you know, 15-year natural resource, natural environmental accounts uh, strategy comes out, comes in that the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy just passed. Uh, just, uh, 
uh, announced, uh, proposed uh, a few months ago. Uh, so yeah, we got to get our numbers straight, right? We got to get our accounting straight. We got to get our, you know, this is, you mentioned this New York Times op-ed from a, a, a yesterday um, on congestion pricing, right? Here's an externality, right? So, you know, every individual, every driver, right? Not just the Ubers and the UPSs, everybody, right? Contributes to congestion. And when you look at this sort of congestion versus pollution externalities, it's actually the congestion in many ways, right? The, the negative impact on others time spent sitting in traffic in New York City, that is the dominant factor. So yes, we also need, right? Gas taxes, pollution taxes, carbon taxes, carbon prices in general. Um, but actually, congestion charges congestion pricing in many ways is is the big is the huge externality that we ought to internalize right every driver ought to pay for the full cost that their driving causes and congestion contributes a lot to those negative costs borne by everybody else not by themselves you're saying it so matter-of-factly and it sounds matter-of-fact to me why aren't all economists saying this why like why is this not mainstream what's so what's missing well it is i mean to be clear right like the guy who first came up with this concept right, is never going to win a nobel prize for it because he died a decade before the first prize was given out right so i mean the ideas have been around forever um and actually what is new what has changed in many ways they've always been basically uh, and now you can accuse the whole profession of ideological bias, at least in the in the not too distant past. They've always been sort of chapter twenty seven of the textbook, right? There's basically you know the first few chapters is hey markets work, and then eventually oh what are, what if they don't? And I can tell you um, you know economics is has been taught very very differently, um, let's say the last decade or two than um, before then. Uh, because precisely because right the sort of the standard econ textbook uh n gregory mankiw uh yeah relative conservative uh economist who did write one of the more prominent textbooks um his textbook has pollution in chapter 1 externalities in chapter 1 um and yeah that's you know i would say a relatively recent change and frankly into a large part driven by the recognition of how large this negative carbon externality truly is, right? Like you can't sort of say, oh yeah, everything works perfectly. And then, you know, every once in a while there are some negative effects on society. No, it's like front and center. The fact that right, markets are heavily distorted towards pollution is a real problem. And I mean, I would not say that is some, uh, you know, sort of that's left to the climate economists while mainstream economists ignore this phenomenon. No, not at all. I mean, basically, we might still differ in what ought to be done about it, right? I would say climate economists in many ways are a lot more sophisticated about the the suite of policy instruments necessary to do something about it. Um, but, um, you know, I would say, Pretty much everybody recognizes that it's that it's a problem. Well, they don't necessarily propose doing something about it. I mean, I feel like maybe you know better than I do. Well, now we're talking politics, though, right? I mean, okay, fair enough, right? I mean, okay, hold on. Uh, actually, everyone proposes to do something about it. 
many would propose, or you know, most everyone, um, many might say, oh, but you know, there ought to be, you know, efficiency ought to be put front and center, and therefore the only climate policy I can possibly be for is a carbon tax and nothing else. Uh, that sort of argument. Uh, but even there, I think you know, opinions are diff- are changing quite quickly. I would argue, uh, and to a large part driven by what we see out in the real world, right? Sort of this push toward green industrial policy that the Obama administration, uh, sorry, the, the Biden administration huh, is uh, putting front and center. Inflation Reduction Act, Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, Chips and Science Act, these sort of trillions of dollars, like $2 trillion spent on clean, green stuff over a decade in this country alone. Um Frankly, the first analyses coming out from very mainstream macroeconomists are basically all about, yes, those sorts of subsidies are eminently justified by the massive positive learning by doing spillovers that we see as a result. Or put differently, um, GDP, you know, naively measured GDP will go up because of the Inflation Reduction Act because of those learning by doing externalities. Is it fair to say that when you talk about carbon tax, I think of it as, as uh, proper counting? Because uh, I, like I like the idea of, to me, to my ears, tax doesn't sound good. But if we're accounting, if we're not accounting for who, who pays, like if, if I have a business and uh, the salespeople spend a whole lot of money on um, entertainment and I assign those costs to the engineering group, I can't run my company properly. It, I have no idea. You know, th- the salespeople are just going to go nuts I, and the engineers are going to – So, I mean, I, so, I, so I think it's a – you know, the, the right accounting is a much more fundamental step even, right? Like you need to account for, okay, how much pollution is there um, – caused by you know daily actions uh burning of fossil fuels and so on and then the carbon price um comes in as saying okay and that's the way to to make sure that that pollution isn't shoved off onto anybody else i mean okay so this is like you know the more different example might be look as a society right we have sort of agreed that it's not okay to just take your trash and dump it in the next river right um that's illegal Right. Or there are heavy fines for doing this. And they may not actually the fines themselves might not be all that heavy, by the way. There's just the norms, right? Uh, have changed so dramatically. I mean, we used to do this sort of stuff, right? Just dump our trash wherever. Well, we no longer do that, right? It, it's, uh, uh, you don't pollute. Maybe less. That I mean, we way. don't have rivers I mean, on okay, fire, fair, but fair, yeah. okay, fair. I mean, fair enough. Yes. I mean, we still, as a, as a society, still do way too much, right? There's way too much pollution in the world. Sure. Yes. Um, but right, like you don't, you don't drive down the West side highway, open your, your car window and just, you know, dump your, uh, trash into the Hudson, right? Um, nobody does that. Like, <laughs> actually, nobody can do it because there's not a bike path between you and the Hudson, right? So, so, you know, things changing for the better. Yeah, I will. And I have to mention that when I was visiting my mom, my mom lives upstate and they, they have a, a, you have to pay to have your trash hauled. So they do actually – there's one time I was walking along and it was a scene that would have been an ash can school. It's just this beautiful, stunning creek except there was a big garbage bag 
with dirty diapers spilling out in the middle of it. And yep. she's like, yeah, people just, they don't want to pay to have it hauled. So they just sometimes throw it out the window. But presumably I agree a lot less than before. Gotcha. Okay. So yes, let's agree, right? Too much pollution in the world. Um, and back to, <laughs> back to what it started, right? We need to account for it. And yeah, and then we got to do something about it, right? And by the way, none of this is a recent um, phenomenon, right? So, I mean, I, I, I often say like sort of the, the first climate policy, which to be clear, wasn't, of course, a, um, a climate policy at the time. But the first time we sort of priced the negative externality from burning coal was actually before the Industrial Revolution. It was 1306 uh, England, King Edward I, um, literally banning the burning of uh, sea coal. Um, penalty for repeat offenders? Death. Right now, okay, he didn't do it for climate reasons. He did it because his mom in Nottingham had asthma and, you know, lots of indoor-outdoor air pollution in London, Nottingham, and wherever else. Um, but uh, still, right? Now, okay, of course, that policy didn't last for long, right? Uh, his brother came along and uh, vacated the law, and one industrial revolution later, right, we're still burning coal. Um, still... That too, right? That was a policy intervention that basically said, thou shall not pollute. If you do and you get caught a second time, you die. Uh, and uh, actually, I should, I should immediately add to this. Uh, I've actually looked into this quite a bit and historians differ whether uh, the death penalty was ever actually um, uh, used in this context. Right, so it may not have been an all that effective policy, maybe because the penalty was actually too harsh, right? Because it wasn't sort of a price on burning coal, it was an infinite price. It was right, you pay with your death, right? And uh yeah, you can sort of argue that that's not the appropriate price either that we ought to be paying for pollution. Um like, yes, eventually, sure, pollution better go the way child labor has gone, right? Something not to be done. Uh, but is it the right policy instrument to get us there? Well, I would argue no. So we're getting to the second conversation, which was the one we had, a, what, two weeks ago? And it was uh, much more, I mean, you talk about child labor, and I... I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm going to repeat. I think you've heard this before when we had the conversation. To me, I'm a big fan of of uh, a free market if it means I make something that I can make better than you can, or maybe cheaper than you can, and you have a, and you have a certain amount of money, and we agree for you get the product, I get your money, I benefit, you benefit because I value your money more than the thing that I built, and vice versa, and that makes the world a better place, and that's great. Mm -hmm. Now. If in making my thing, I employ an infant, so child labor, as you mentioned, I think we've generally agreed that that's not a free market. I, I'm coercing the kid or if I – Of course. If I force someone to work under threat of violence. I mean, slavery is bad. Child labor is bad. Of course. Yes. Yeah. And we right? don't put a price on those things. We say that well, – I mean, what we say is you're going to go to jail if you get caught doing it. Yes. And – to me, pollution feels like something like that. And 
what I think you came at something very similar in a different way, which is I think how you mentioned one of your bookends. Yes, I mean basically pollution better go the way of I mean actually okay so this is actually uh, uh, thanks for queuing up for me to be able to mention the title but so so okay uh-huh. so this is climate shock written with Marty Weitzman uh, late great Marty Weitzman um, and we have the 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 last chapter the sort of afterward of the, in the book is uh, basically saying look if fifty years from now we are still debating what the right price per ton of CO two is we have lost this battle. Right. And, you know, it's in many ways, it's sort of a bit of a philosophical discussion. Or we turned it into that as a couple economists. Uh, but it's basically saying, look, by then carbon has, you know, better disappeared, carbon pollution that better disappeared. Um, for, for a couple of reasons, right? Sort of newer, better technologies come along and sort of just make it unnecessary to burn carbon to produce, uh, to generate energy, electricity, right? That on the one hand. And on the other, um, you know, we just sort of, we've moved on, right? We, uh, we no longer want, nobody wants to burn the stuff anymore um, because we will have priced it out of the system in the all-encompassing sense of the term. Okay, so, you know, when you price something out of the system, what does that mean? Does it now have a price of zero because nobody demands it? Or does it have a price of infinity, a very, very high price? Because, well, you're sort of inducing people not to want to burn it and actually i mean this is a you know it's a philosophical discussion but um will carbon eventually have a very very high price or will it have a price of zero because we just priced it out like we we we, we, we no longer demand it right like nobody wants to burn it. and honestly in some sense it doesn't matter either way it will have gone the way of well child labor right something not to be done like you said, nobody's sitting around debating what the right price per uh, hour is for a 14-year-old, right, uh, for their services making pottery, uh, because we just don't do that. You know, in most countries, it's illegal, and thank God it is. Uh, now, pollution, in some sense, same same idea, right? Eventually, we just want to have stopped carbon pollution in this case now, specifically, uh, because it's just... You know, it's this ancient way of generating heat and producing electricity that is just so inefficient, laughably inefficient. Uh, there's no reason to do it, right? Now, you know, every once in a while, right, like you get lost in the woods and all you have is, you know, sort of <laughs> a, a way to keep yourself warm or alive for the night, right, by um, by burning uh, something around you. Cool. Well, okay. Now speaking in... Sitting in New York City during the wildfires, uh, being enveloped in the, the gunk from the Canadian wildfires, right? Maybe if you want to reconsider all of this, but, uh, there is a good reason to believe that newer, better technology will help us to have this right, carbon pollution go the way of unethical behavior, something not to be done. How do you get there? That's a different question. How much, when you say carbon pollution, how much are you saying only carbon pollution? Uh, what about pollution from, um, I don't know, when the windmills get decommissioned or the solar panels get decommissioned? That's got to go somewhere. I mean, okay, of course, right? I mean, okay, all pollution is bad, right? All externalities, all negative externalities are bad. Um, now, you know, sure, let's talk again in 30 years, right? When basically decommissioned wind turbine 
plate play, uh, blades are the biggest problem, right? And carbon no longer is. Uh, I, I wished that were the case. <laughs> um, now, you know, it doesn't mean that there won't be problems in the world. But yes, I am focused right now on, you know, car- and not just carbon, right? Greenhouse gas pollution writ large, right? Uh, climate change. Well, what about all the, I mean, getting, I've had Mark Mills on the podcast. I don't know if you've interacted with him mm-hmm. and, uh, um, but there's lots of, of projections of how much we would have to dig out of the earth, if possible, to electrify everything. Sure. But if those prices went up too, then we would solve those problems without, if they were solvable. Of course. Okay. So, I mean, basically, you know, by, you know, Mark Mills, uh, uh, famous, infamous, right? Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, the conservative Manhattan Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never can't claim I've debated him, but I've sort of certainly debated a couple of his colleagues in the recent past publicly on stage. Uh, and it's always this sort of interesting thing, right? So like I, I would call it, you know, what about right? It's sort of like, oh, wait. So, uh, you know, you are focused on carbon pollution. Good for you. But don't you know that, uh, the rare earth metals in solar panels too come with problems. And by the way, they are being produced by, you know, child slave labor and so on. And, you know, if you were for solar panels, you were for slavery. Uh, like, uh, no, sorry, dude. I'm not. <laughs> uh, yes, there are other problems in the world. And no, I, yeah, solar panels themselves are not going to solve every social problem everywhere, it turns out. Newsflash. Uh, sure. But, you know, again, right? This is sort of this whataboutism of like, uh, okay, wait, you are telling me that we can't do something about climate change because there are other problems out there too. Yes, there are. And still, uh, the world would be a lot better place if we were to start with some of the bigger externalities, pollution problems out there, or the biggest one, I would say, climate. Uh, and yeah, not create other problems in the process. Sure. But look, there are trade-offs in the world. Of course there are. There always will be. In many ways, economics is all about just that, right? Like, you know, Mick Jagger, right? Can't always get what you want. Uh, let's figure out how to navigate these trade-offs. Let's figure out how to, frankly, price all these externalities. And yes, that includes the pollution caused by the mining of the uh, rare earth metals going into the solar panel. And by the way, yeah, we are innovating our way out of many of these problems as we speak, right? So, hey, you run out of this one precious metal or it seems to be getting really pricey because there's a lot of demand for it. Okay, well, Innovator comes along and figures out how to produce batteries without lithium, uh, produce solar panels without that particular precious metal. And frankly, maybe that's the bigger lesson to me, at least, in all of this. Fossil fuels are commodities, right? Their prices will always fluctuate. They're always going to be some you know, MBS style character, uh, Saudi crown prince, right? Who will use it as a sort of economic weapon. Uh, we'll try to use it as an economic weapon by cranking up the price and, you know, crashing somebody else's economy. Um, solar panels, wind and so on and so forth. They are technologies. What's of an inherent feature of these technologies? They can only get better and cheaper over time. You're not unlearning how to do these things. Um, and frankly, solar relative to coal, gas has already crossed the threshold of 
being the cheapest form of electricity in history. It is. It's fundamentally a better technology, and it's only going to get better as we go uh, further into the future. It's not going to get worse. So the, the specific question I was asking, I think you answered, but I just want to make it clear. That <laughs> when you say we want to put a price on carbon pollution, would it be safer to say we want to put a price on all pollution? Of course. Yes. And now I think that it's possible that we don't find ways uh, – the pollution may be too expensive for some of these other things that you're saying or technolo- that technologies might come along. We might not be able to solve some of these issues. To me, um, I, I keep coming to population and um, – I mean, it, with a high enough population, everything becomes – no, I don't want to say it, I don't want to say it too, bluntly, uh, too broadly there. But with a smaller population, we can do a lot more. And sorry, we can we can burn, say, wood. Wood wood isn't a problem if there's uh, under a billion people on the planet. You can burn a lot. Okay, where, where are we going with this? Are we now going to sort of like Sierra Club, circa nineteen twenties or whatever? That you know, well, put, I, put up put up not, put up larger fences at the border because um, we don't want you know more Americans will pollute more and you know. I can believe that technologies may come around that don't require uh, polluting and produce energy, but I can also imagine that we can't figure it out. That we keep trying, like so far we've substituted a lot, like we run out of something, we substitute something else. But I can, I could imagine it that we say we want a technology that achieves X, but we can't get it. Okay, so hold on. So I, I guess a couple of things. So, so first of all, is reproductive choice an important topic? Yes. I might have mentioned my wife's a gynecologist. Turns out she's an abortion doc. She's a family planning doc. She runs she runs family planning at NYU, uh, NYU Langone Hospitals. Uh, so, I mean, yes, of course. Duh. Um, is it a problem that women are dying in childbirth? Yes, that too, right? And by the way, solving that particular problem right about now, by the way, means more pollution, right? It does, right? Like, I mean, the immediate answer in many ways is – more roads to more hospitals and more transportation choices for people, women who don't currently have it. Um, and, you know, getting the billion people who don't have access to electricity, access to electricity, services, uh, you know, uh, more physicians and so on and so forth. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's, that's one part of this. Uh, I think the second bit, and this is, frankly, this is a bit of a trickier conversation. This is where economics enters again, right? So it's sort of the population question. Right now, I guess my <laughs> my clear answer is: Look, I'm an environmentalist because I like people. Or put differently, the planet's gonna be fine with or without us, right? Like climate change, you know, sure it, it alters ecosystems and so on, and all of that is a real problem. Um, but I'm not worried about the planet. <laughs> uh, I'm worried about society. I'm worried about us, you and me, people uh, living on this planet and, you know, us radically changing the environment in which human society has thrived for, you know, 10,000 years, tens of tens of thousands of years, and that we are altering that very stable climate that we have enjoyed for those 10,000 years radically by us burning CO2 emissions. Okay. Um, no. Uh, 
population control or so but but I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth now right but like reading between the lines here uh if we were to go back to just a billion people on the planet many of these environmental problems would go away yes they would and no i certainly wouldn't say that that's the way to do it um do we need to stop growing our active i mean is the demographic transition an important aspect here? Of course it is. And by the way, right, educating more, uh, you know, 12-year-old girls in uh, countries that don't currently afford 12-year-olds, that kind of uh, education is an important element, sure, right? And now we can have a debate about whether it's appropriate climate policy. It's appropriate to call it climate policy to educate 12-year-olds, right? Uh, but... Uh, no, the problem at the end is still a pollution problem, not a population problem. Yeah, I, I have to be careful because just saying the word population is going to – I didn't mean to get into talking about population. What I meant to get to was that you're saying that if we price pollution appropriately, that will lead to developing technologies that can do things that don't pollute as much and ideally don't pollute at all. Yes. I mean, here's the – Here's a very concrete example. Okay, so get lithium-ion batteries, as far as we know now, are one of the key ingredients in the clean energy transition, right? We want to electrify lots and lots of things, transport and so on. Okay, and by the way, now we can argue about our EVs the answer, or should we also build better cities so fewer people need to drive and so on? And of course, the answer is all of the above, clear. But it's also clear that we need many, many more batteries. Okay, cool. Lithium is something that, that the mining of lithium causes pollution. That's a problem. We need to price that pollution as we go about this transition. We also, at the same time, want to look at new battery technologies that frankly produce the same services without any of the lithium. So for example, instead of lithium ion batteries, uh, turns out oxygen ion batteries also work potentially. Now, okay, we don't produce them at scale, right? That's the sort of thing that scientists uh, are working on in labs. But yeah, I'm all for scientists studying, working on trying to figure out the engineering of other battery technologies that frankly allow us to innovate away from lithium-ion batteries that are a big part of the solution, but yes, come with their own trade-offs. Let me be very precise in asking this question, and hopefully <laughs> I can get it precise. Cool. If we price things so that we can't do the old things, say lithium-ion, yep. but the new ones don't exist yet, mm -hmm then we we may have to do things that aren't technology-based in, in terms of major reductions. I presume that's what a lot of what the market says is if, if it's too expensive to heat your home the old way and there's no new way, I, I, maybe there's new ways to heat your home, then you got to put on a lot of sweaters. Well, okay. I have some good news for you. There are new ways to do this, right? Like we have the technology, actually, maybe that's the biggest point here, right? So first of all, of course, it's a balance, right? It's both. So, okay, it's the, it's a balance in many ways, right? It's a balance to say, no, 
technology alone is not going to do everything, right? And I guess, you know, like, uh, actually, we started this conversation by you citing uh, Twitter and sort of mentioning how we met via Twitter. But uh, so here is uh, a good example from the good old Twitter days. So it turns out that um, the former head of AI at Tesla, mm-hmm. Andres, Andres Kapathy, is the name, uh, who, by the way, so he's no longer there, right? Uh, so, you know, former head. Um, it was last, uh, last spring. Uh, he literally tweeted uh, something along the lines of, I always forgot how beautiful European cities are, right? So here's a dude who works on the ultimate techno fix, right? How to turn EVs into AVs, right? EVs, electric vehicles into self-driving cars, right? Uh, and, and you know, first of all, good luck, right? Turns out, you know, technology is not quite as advanced as uh, many of us thought 10 years or so ago and how quickly it would take a ter- uh, to make cars fully self-driving, right? Not as easy after all. Okay, fine. Um, but then basically you have the guy working on this ultimate techno fix, who, by the way, yes, lives in Silicon Valley, right? And of course, right, drives everywhere from his large suburban home to his suburban office park uh, workplace and so on. Uh, you know, he goes on European vacation, right, and discovers that there's a better way to organize ourselves. Okay, so first of all, welcome to the world, kiddo, right? Uh, glad you experienced life somewhere outside this pathetic, you know, suburban hellscape that is Silicon Valley. Um, and, uh, yeah, it turns out it takes much more than just the EV, AV techno fix to solve transport, right? We should all be, you know, living in more livable places, walkable neighborhoods, and so on. Actually, the perfect example of this is uh, when you Google walkable neighborhoods, one of the first things that comes up is an AEI initiative, American Enterprise Institute, right? If you know anything about them, like they're not the world's most progressive liberal think tank, right, turns out. Uh, And they have this sort of initiative about about how, how walkable neighborhoods are fundamentally better ways to organize ourselves and how we should all cheer for them and how it's, you know, a conservative ideal, right? Like, you know, you have the the extended family that you live with in your walkable neighborhood and communities supporting each other and so on. Like, yeah, damn right. Of course. Part of the solution. Part of the climate solution too. Of course it is. Right? The less car dependent neighborhoods and so on. Great. Let's go for it. So yes, it's a balance, right? It's not just the techno fix. Of course, it's you know, fixing how we organize ourselves as society, right? Figuring out how to move beyond the crazy car-dependent life that many, you know, recently built American cities are, are based on and the sprawling burbs around them and so on and so forth. Um, and figure out better ways that move well beyond just classic techno fixes, right? Invent new gadget and so on. Okay. Back to your question. Um, do I think that, um, you know, if we were to price pollution and no alternative were available, that we would have bigger problems than the situation we are in right now? Yes, of course. Now, fortunately, that's the right good news. Uh, we have those alternative technologies. They exist. They are in part cheaper than the old stuff. Um, and yes, it, it's incumbent upon us to 
move with uh, speed and scale, right? So to paraphrase a Silicon Valley venture capitalist and his climate book, uh, to uh, into that direction, right? Scale up those new technologies. Do it quickly. Invest in them heavily. Invest in the transition. And by the way, a lot of the barriers here are in fact the sort of thing that we all should cheer to go away. So for example, I talked about solar being right, cheaper, better than any other. Like, yes, it is. Why are we not just using it? Well, it turns out 93% of global coal power is locked into long-term contracts of 20 plus years. Right? It's, you know, in some sense, regulation, contracts um, locked in for these you know, two decades plus that stand in the way of Frankly, us deploying this newer, better technology at scale, even if it's already cheaper, literally at this point, uh, is like a study uh, of U.S. coal plants. There's 210 coal plants operating in this country still, you know, plus minus 10 or so, but uh, over a couple, uh, slightly over 200 coal plants operating. For the vast majority of them, it would be cheaper today to shut down the plant the still operating plant and replace it with solar or wind, local solar or wind, um, uh, then just pay for the operating expenses of keeping the coal plant running. Right? So it's not just when you start with a blank uh, field, right? Like when you start sort of from zero, that it's cheaper to build solar than to build coal. No, it's cheaper to shut down the already built coal plant. And replace it with solar and wind, right? Like that's the world we're living. That's how good and how cheap these technologies are that would replace, will sooner rather than later replace, uh, coal and eventually also gas, of course. The question is how to do it much, much faster than the path we are currently on. So I think there's, I think I can see where some agreement and disagreement with us is. I think we both agree. The, that there are many things to be, to be done. One of the big ones is to account for these externalities, and it should it, whatever pollutes um, it should be significantly more expensive. And um, and I think that something. And I think that so we both agree that that'll lead to a future in which we solve problems differently than we do today, and we'll like those solutions more. And I think I'm, I'm living the way I am. Partly to show, I, I think that you think that there can be a lot of technologies that can solve some things with it, with less or no pollution, and I think less of that. And I'm trying to show what's possible. I'm trying to live a way that shows what's possible for the future that I predict. And you show you're living a way that uh, that shows it's possible for the future that you predict based on slightly different um, predictions of what what we'll be able to do with technology within our lifetimes. But we both agree on how to get there. And so if it turns, you're, it turns out you're right, I'm happy. If it turns out I'm right, you're probably happy too. It'll just be depending on what technologies get invented and how fast. I, I mean, yeah. Okay. So, okay. To be clear, right? Like you and I compared to, frankly, the rest of uh, the 8 billion of us on this planet, right? Uh, lead very, very similar lives, right? I'm on a third floor walk-up. You were in, uh, which floor are you on? Fifth floor. Yeah. Fifth floor walk-up. Okay, fine, right? Like you get credit for two more flights of stairs every morning, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, right? Like sort of, it's just very similar. Like, yes. Okay, you have your fridge unplugged. 
I don't. Um, does that now mean like we have fundamental disagreement in how to lead our lives? No. Uh, it's the, right, the decarbonized, highly efficient, walkable, bikeable urban life that I think ought to play a real role in this yeah. decarbonized future. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess, right, the question, I mean, first of all, the question is, how do you present this to your own audience, uh, in a way that motivates incentivizes right energizes uh leads more to want to do this uh, you know the same move in this direction um versus basically right uh turning off the ones who sort of look at it and say ha 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 yeah i told you you know as i i, I knew it right like that's what they are after right they are here to sort of take away my car and my house and my you know my lifestyle right um, and yeah, now we are back to, I think it's George H.W. Bush, right? In Rio, right? Uh, first Earth Summit. The American way of life is not up for debate, right? Uh, and I guess, you know, I would say, well, up to a point, you know, up to a point, he has a point, right? And this is where technologies come in. But of course, yes, there are better ways to organize society. This is the, you know, Silicon Valley guy going on European vacation. Um, and, um, it ought to be a mix. Of course it is, right? Ultimately, it's a mix between technology, policy, individual action, behavioral change, whatever you want to call it, and basically figuring out how to sequence things right, where you say, hey, I don't change anything else about my life, but I use better, newer technology, versus, hey, I'm actually going to be a better person if I change certain things about the way I you know, organize my own life, um, while deploying those newer, better technologies that enable me to do certain things that I otherwise wouldn't be able to do. I'm sure I told you about, but have I told you about the Not Just Bikes video series on YouTube? Uh, no, I don't think you have. Oh, man. All right. So I'm going to put the link in the chat. And I'll, <laughs> uh, the It's this guy who grew up in Canada. Uh-huh. And lived in a lot of cities. He's been a guest on this podcast. And uh, he he lived all around the world in different cities and then ended up in Amsterdam. And he kept asking himself, why do I love Dutch cities so much? <laughs> and at first he thought it was just, well, bike friendly. But then the more he learned about it, the more he learned about how they deliberately and consciously, you know, a lot of trial and error went from a city that was overrun with cars to a city that's not. And look, I don't know anyone who wakes up in the morning and says – I'm going to go watch a city, a video on city planning, but he gets millions and millions of views. I mean, it's like, Casey's kind of funny. He's pretty funny too. And I think it's covering a lot of what you're talking about, about, cool. I mean, there's newer technologies, but there's also like living in a city where bicycle, you can just walk everywhere and bike everywhere. And it, like a car would just slow you down. Which by the way, by the way, welcome to New York city, right? Like, I mean, turns out there are American cities, or at least there's one where that is very much the case, Right. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, although partly, I mean, we, we got a long way to go. I, I mean, I never know when I walk out or bike around outside, right? And yes, of course, right? Get yelled at and yell at uh, Bourbonites and their SUVs, right? But I never know whether I should have pity on these people or whether I should, you know, sort of make fun of them, have pity for them, or sort of, you know, uh, like yell at them for, for like, you know, encroaching on the bike lanes and so on, parking in the bike lane. Because frankly, you know, more often than not, I come down on the pity side where it's kind of like, 
oh, I'm so sorry for your kid. Like quite literally, like I, I have actually I have videos by now because I have my little GoPro attached to my back helmet. Um, uh, you know, added after I got punched in the face by one of these Bourbonites. Uh, but basically, uh, like you look at the sort of faces of the two kids in strapped in the back of the SUV, looking out at your kids on the scooter, scooting past them like three times in a row in the three blocks, right? Like, so your, your usual sort of, um, uh, city biking experience. Well, where, yeah, the cars are stuck, right? And then eventually, uh, they get to go. And then, of course, they're stuck again and you scoot bike past them again and so on. And then repeats itself three times. And all three times you have these two kids in the back of the, you know, SUV with the Jersey license plate. Look at your kids and sort of like, uh, you know, like, yeah, I have pity on them, right? It's like, uh, I'm sorry you have to go through this being stuck in your car. Um, while my kids, you know, uh, happily chatting while scooting past you. Um, and, uh, <laughs> that's, I think a real, well, actually that's a real question, right? Like, how do you convince the parents of that particular vehicle that there is a better way to organize yourselves and that, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure you made a conscious choice at some point. Um, and of course, frankly, many people who don't have the choice, right? That's a completely different question where the question is, okay, we ought to be creating the choice for them, making it possible to, for example, afford to live in a smaller space, of course, but closer to where they need to be. Sure. Um, build better homes in cities and so on. Sure. But yeah, then a lot of it is basically the, you know, they thought that the right thing to do as soon as the first kid came is pack up from their East village apartment and move out to the burbs. Um, well, maybe it wasn't <laughs> right. And basically, how do you, how, how do you make it possible? Maybe this is really the ultimate question, right? How do you make possible, make it possible for the young family to choose not to do what frankly for the past few decades has been sort of the standard thing, right? Like you, yeah, you spend your 20s in the city. And then as soon as you, you know, as soon as the first kid comes, you pack up and you go to the burps, right? The sort of classic Hollywood life, right? Hollywood like uh, promoted life, if you will, promoted by Hollywood films. Um, and uh, how do you change the norm? How do you make it completely obvious that no, especially with kids, you want to live in a walkable neighborhood. You want to live in New York downtown Manhattan, if you will, or for that matter, right? Like the, not just bikes, right? Uh, the sort of the Amsterdams of the world that have taken, clearly taken, consciously taken many more steps in the right direction. And frankly, to be fair, are much further along that transition than New York City currently is. Now, I think that we've in an hour, a bit over an hour summarized our conversations and where we spoke <laughs> about and also where we ended the last one, because as we parted, we were talking about answering that question of what to do next. Of Because uh, for yep. me, I, I take a leadership approach and I propose that we, I, I know we're going to talk again and I hope it's recorded uh, to start addressing that question. And well, I mean, how do we get the votes? How do we change people so that they look forward to these things, which I'm asking yep. rhetorically now. And, uh, but I do want to, is there anything I didn't think to ask to wrap up with or next steps to, to follow up with you? 
like what what book should they start with or what articles should they start with um well actually okay so maybe uh a good place to start if you allow me to advertise my own stuff but actually um so I, okay my, my my two most recent new york times op-eds one was the first one february i think uh local law 97 um gwagner.com slash ll97 um and basically about this frankly fairly amazing not fairly amazing amazing uh very ambitious law that's already on the books um focused on decarbonizing new york city's building sector and i can tell you this you know it's a very sort of optimistic uh take on things and the grand conclusion is that if we were to do this, we would make New York City a much more livable place. Cool. Okay, fast forward to uh, a couple of days ago, New York Times op-ed on congestion pricing. Grand conclusion, fantastic that it's happening. After a decades-long fight, it is in fact happening. And if we are going down that route, since we are doing it, we are making New York City a much more livable place. And in many ways, right, like... Uh, part of this whole idea of, okay, you gotta start with your own neighborhood, if you will, in this case, it's New York City. Um, like, yeah, a big part of the climate solution, as it were, is to turn your own place, New York in this case, into a more livable place, more livable neighborhood. Um, and you could do a lot worse than start with how to make your own home more livable. Quite literally, right inside your four walls, um, and how to make getting around less painful, this case, or you know, much much better um, congestion pricing in this case. And it's these two, uh, you know, it's it's two different topics, if you will, in some sense disjointed, right? One is buildings, decarbonizing buildings. The other one is uh, uh, traffic congestion. Also about decarbonizing, moving in the right direction on on the on the transport front um when you put them together uh you basically have you know you have the vast majority of carbon emissions originating in a city buildings housing office buildings on the one hand transport how to get around on the other putting them together and i i i must confess each of these op-eds presents the one solution presented in the op-ed as the one most important climate fix. Now, you know, that's slightly disingenuous, I can tell you, because when you put, you know, you got to put them together, right? Yeah, both of them uh, uh, need to act uh, uh, together. And I do think that uh, you could do a lot worse than basically read them both in sequence uh, together. Uh, dismiss the title as a bit sensationalist, if you will, <laughs> and focus on how, for each of these two dom domains, and especially when it's put together, it's about insulating, electrifying your own home, and solving the you know crazy, maddening traffic problem that is Lower Manhattan, uh, and looking at it through this climate pollution lens as yeah making your own neighborhood, starting with your own neighborhood, making that more efficient, more livable, better, is in many ways the best place to start in this right, clean energy, clean transport, and so on, transition. I'm so glad to hear a voice that can switch between 
the big and small, the, the, the policy and the personal and say what you just said. And because so many people push back, oh, if I do, if I act, it's not enough. So yeah, Karen, I, I know we want to go on and I hope we'll, we'll start with the next <laughs> one, but I want to thank you very much for sharing all that. And, uh, I'll put the links to the articles and the books in the notes and yeah, thank you very much. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.